You know the weenies? <laughs> Remember when we in the first year we did the whole story thing, I was so lucky and all of us and everyone's like, who's new? It's like, such an amazing thing that happened back in the dark ages of this church's life, where it's in our 60 year, I think that was strange, it's fine. And we revisit this often to just normalize that everyone has junk, but God's grace is all in our lives, fingerprints all over, and we want to encourage people to be really known. The second thing is that in a culture that's exhausted, we wanted to create simplicity and margin. So most people, we're in Joburg, most people in Joburg are hanging by a thread. Some people will be more courageous and they not acknowledge it, but most people will just pretend or medicate their way out of it. And uh, when we planted the church, we didn't want to plant something that just was like a Christian hamster wheel. Uh, my son recently got a hamster, so this is like a very powerful illustration. <laughs> those things just run that wheel and they're nocturnal. They don't tell you this when they sell you those things to the shop. They run that wheel the whole night, you know? And that's what it, it's, that's what Joe is like. They just run, 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 run themselves ragged. And they come to church and we think that's what we need to do. We need to keep our people busy when they become bad, you know, keep them out of trouble. And there's so many things. We need to be doing all of these different things as a church. Now, church is becoming increasingly complex. If you're planting a church, you need to simplify the faith. You're not planting common ground. <laughs> I love common ground. They're amazing. That stuff we just heard in there is incredibly helpful and next level stuff. But you're not planting common ground. Alright? You can, by God's grace, may, you may get there, but don't measure what you need to be doing now with what churches that have that length of longevity and maturity are doing. You're finding something that's small. You're gathering people together and keeping them on the mission. If you if you exhaust your people, they will implode. You will implode. Your soul will shrivel up. You'll be leading something and you'll be hating the thing that you're leading. So make sure that in your own life you are modeling that you have margin. And that you're simple. We we got burnt out at our last church doing things every night of the week, running programs this way. So when we come the church, we said we'll do Sundays and we'll do a midweek thing. What's it? I was like, where's the men's meeting? I said, we don't have a men's meeting. Women? No, we don't have women. Any courses? No, we don't have any courses. So what do you do here? We have community groups that meet once a week and we have Sunday gatherings. And the rest of the time, we want the husbands of home with their wives and their kids. We want you meeting your neighbors. We want you running with unbelievers. We want you doing life with people. We want you on mission, not at the church. Twice a week is plenty of time to hang out with Christians. Then go. Go. Go be salt and light and get in and suck in. I spent so much of my life as a pastor in my previous church, and previous life, it almost was like, busy. I had no non-Christian friends. I didn't know my neighbors. And the occasional ones that I didn't know, I had no time to spend with them. Every time they met me, they looked at Dougie's just run off his seat. I was the worst adversary for Christianity. They looks like he's a pastor. Dougie looks like he's hanging by the He's always busy. You know, we're the people most in danger of wearing that as a badge of honor. Busy. Get, repent. If that's, if when people ask you at this conference, how are you doing, and you answer busy, you need to get on your knees before God and say, God, please help me. Because busy is not the hallmark of those who follow Jesus. Yeah, we work hard, absolutely. Like Paul, we work hard night and day, we're diligent, but we're not stressed out, exhausted, run ragged, lacking life. That's, that's not what God wants for us. 
Because what you are, your people will see. They'll see that and say, like, hmm. And unbelievers will see it and think, weird. Oh, that, that thanks. My good friend Ross Lester put it this way. When you kind of create a community, put it this way. Help people understand that they need to use their home, see their homes as mission stations. They need to see their jobs as missionary assignments. And they need to see their money as mission ammunition. When you help the people understand that tonight is that all of their life, they, you're putting their whole life together on mission. And that you're incorporating and redeeming all the normal rhythms of life, not just loading with church activity, especially if you're planting. If you're early planting or you're early years or you're about to plant, you can make course corrections. Put this stuff in as early as possible. Word to the wise, the things you don't put in in the early years are ten times harder to put in later on in the life of your church. Number three, in a culture drenched in self-culture and religion, connect as much as you can to the gospel. This is again Johannesburg, but I think it's probably broader than that. Everyone's reaching, even Christians are reaching for the next self-help book. They're watching programs, they're watching TED Talks, and how they can deal with their things. You need to drive your people week in and week out to the gospel. And get clear on gospel language. What is the gospel? Can the people in our churches articulate the gospel and how it applies to every aspect and area of their lives? If we can't do that, if we can't do that for ourselves and we can't do it for our people, we have failed as church partners and church leaders. I don't care how many people you have on a Sunday, I don't care how much money is in the bank, how worse bank anything is, if they can't make that simple connection, we have failed people in our responsibility as Christian leaders. And it's way more tricky and difficult than it sounds. It's hard to help people understand how the gospel influences every area of their lives. But you want to avoid, like cancer, allowing people to lean on self-help and religious works and being with people and anything else. Drive them to the gospel with, with a courageousness and clarity. And that's, that will help them. Those two. Number four. In a culture of attendees and passengers, we wanted to prioritize making disciples. How many of you are exhausted from having attendees and passengers in your congregation on your ship? Who, you know, don't like the menu. And I'm not doing anything. And I'm maturing, like we've heard Steve say so far, I'm not maturing, I'm not making any progress. But there's something, I don't like the music, I don't like the kids. I'm worried about the safety of the kids' ministry. Tell me more about that. I do want to hear about this thing, but I'm just like, you can tell I'm like, oh, I'm thirsty, I'm just like, thirsty to that, and so I'm not interested in that. I don't deal a lot in those situations, that's how we have Quint and other people in our church. Passengers and attendees will drain all the life out of you. Don't worry about them, because they will come and go. The cruise will end, you'll dock, you'll get rid of them, you'll get a whole bunch more, you'll get a freezing again. Treat them like that, they'll come and go. Be laser-like in making disciples. It's the clearest instruction is Jesus gave to the church. Go and make disciples of the nation. Give your life to making disciples. Sounds simple, doesn't it? It's, it, it? This has been the hardest thing that we've done. Our model for making disciples, uh, some of you have heard it before and have been involved in other talks that we've done. We call it Life and Life Disciple Making. It's one person with three people the same gender, we commit to them for a process between one and three years. 
that's small, that's intentional. We meet with them formally once a week. We meet with them informally once each, once in a month. And then we have informal times outside of that. It's very, very small. The influence I have on those men in my church, there's only three of them, and it's very, very deep. I know everything about them, not like the Lord does, but I know like everything about them, and they know a lot about me. They're in my home. One of our guys who I discipled in my previous group, he got a, he feels God is calling him to plant in Turkey. We believe God is calling him to plant churches in Turkey. He's met an English woman, he's going overseas on Wednesday. I feel like I'm losing a son to the UK to go and pursue this woman, get married, and come back and Lord William will plant, send him to Turkey. We were laughing, having a beer earlier this week as we were saying goodbye. And he was reminding me about a story that he knows, he knows he's 24, 25. He knows how to change a baby's name. Because I said to him, but if you want to hang out with me, I want you to hang out with me. We're going to do life together. Back then, we just had uh, a young kid. I was like, dude, you should come to my house. I need to spend some time with you, but I've got a few other things on the go. Please, busy. So come. He helped me. Off the kids. I'm doing everything. We're making supper. I'm changing nappies. And he's like, I'm like, come, but we're still talking. I'm like, come, come, come. And I'm busy changing the nappies. He's like, it's your dad. You're just running with it. And this boy, like, I looked at him. His eyes are just like... What is that going on? You know, like a cool young 20-something old, and like, I'm busy putting bunny cream on, and doing all this kind of stuff, and I started looking at me, and like, some of you looking at me like, you never changed a nappy before, but you know, I'll just start with you a nappy. You notice how to change a nappy, and, and he references to other people, he says, I'm not changing nappy, because Doug and I did so much of life together just naturally, who rubbed off on each other, hopefully some of it is rubbed off on him, but, you know, we just want to do courses with people. And Paul says, it was was our pleasure to share with you the gospel, not only the gospel, but our very lives. Whereas if you want to plant, if you want to influence people, they need to be in your home and they need to be in your life. And you can't do that with everyone. So you need to choose from people and pour deeply into them. It's slow, it's slow and it's frustrating and it's messy, but it bears incredible, incredible fruit. My wife has just finished reciting uh, three ladies and gone through the process of helping each one of those ladies choose her own groups, choose other disciples in each of those groups, each one of those groups. So now from her three, there's now twelve there in other groups, and she's added that she followed another four. You know, it's but it's been three years. Every week these ladies have been in our home, we've been away with them. You know, it's small. You think, how's the church growing? Is it growing? So it is growing. Very slow. But you work out the exponential effect of what happens when you equip people to disciple others. Doesn't matter how many people come to a church. This you need to settle. As a church leader and as a church partner, it doesn't matter how many people come, but how many people are you equipping to be disciple makers? That's what you're called to do. To put into the hands of other people the ability to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's not how excellent I am at making disciples. If I can't make people who can make disciples, I'm failing. And I'm limited in what I'm able to do. The exponential effect of being a disciple maker is something worth giving all of your best energy to. And we hear, you can hear that this is a big, big deal for us. Number five, in a culture of sound rights, headlines and summaries, we want to dig deep into God's word. People like summaries, they like TED Talks, they like small things. I read the news on Twitter. Because I just want another headline. I don't really want to write, read all the nonsense that journalists have written about it. If you're a journalist, I apologize. I just want summaries. And I'm, you're like that as well. 
You're probably thinking, I'm taking too long in every point. I'll just give us a headline today. We're wired like that. Everyone's got short attention span. In a culture like that, right at the beginning, as soon as you can, change the way you preach and the way you lead your church through God's word. Slow everything down. We started by preaching through the book of Ephesians. It took us about 30 weeks. It was our first preaching series. Somebody said to me, that you're going to kill the church if you preach so slowly through the Bible. I said, I hear you. I don't think you're right. I hear your concerns, but I think you're wrong. I said, after that, we're planning to do John. It's probably going to take us about a year and a half. I said, you'll kill that church. You've got to do, in the beginning, especially, you've got to do themes and topics. Keep it short and sharp, six weeks maximum. Focus. Help people get distracted. Joby, people come and go. The only thing that has significantly grown depth of our love for God's word in our church is preaching long and slow through God's word and allowing God's spirit to take his word and do his work in people's lives. We're not amazing in preaching team. God's word is amazing. Just let it go slow with people. Let them get deep into it. Don't, don't belittle people's attention spans. Stretch them. Stretch them. If you're the primary preaching person, train them and disciple them how to listen longer. Don't, 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 don't accommodate them with a 25-minute mini-sermon. Look, if you can say what you need to say in 25 minutes, say it in 25 minutes. But what, I think you can preach longer. Teach people the word more. There's so much to unpack. Make them fit. Make them fit for listening and fit for digging deep into the word. You'll be serving them so well like that. Number six is in a culture where relationships are driven by um, affinity. We wanted to embrace diversity. Most people hang out with people who are like themselves. You give them a chance, they're going to gravitate towards people who are like them. And every now and then they'll venture out of that bubble a little bit. And most community groups, cell groups, small groups, life groups, whatever people call it these days, are structured around affinity. Life stage, very important. You know? All the young ladies, they want to be with young ladies. All the parents of young kids, they want to be with parents. No one understands the life stage with anyone else. And I get that, and I'll say this as a confession, we have moved away from this slightly, slightly. We've been accommodating because we were very rigid in this in the beginning, and it bore a lot of fruit, and as we've grown, I don't have time to tell the whole story, but we have accommodated a bit more affinity. But as we've done that, we've lost a lot. We've lost a lot. Claire and I have just picked up now, we feel God provoking us to do it, even though we don't have a lot of time for it. We've just picked up a group of young 20s, 19s through the 22s, students. Half of them are, three quarters of them are med students. Our churches have med students for that. Because med students don't know anybody else except other med students. But that's all their friends are. We've come to church, so we've got a whole bunch of them. And we picked them up because their leader left. They went on an internship and left this group without a leader. We've picked them up and put them into our home. But we've made a great place to them. I mean, like, we're like parents to them. You know, when they hear that we're north of 40, they're just like, they're ours. Like, yeah. They think we are old, and we are. And we and the one girl just got a driver's license the other day. I'm trying to remember when I got my driver's license. I can't even remember the experience too clearly. I'm like, you know, we're parenting them, and we've made it clear like this is a weird thing. We'd love you guys to be a part of a multi generational group. They just be themselves, students, students. And you know what caused us to end up leading them? They realized that they didn't have the collective wisdom. They got together and they looked at God's word and they spoke about their lives and they looked around at each other and they thought, there's no one here, you None of us are further down the road than anyone else. No one's different from each other. We need to mix this thing up. When you go just with affinity, you don't have that family feel that we're wired for. 
So fight hard, fight hard. It's a big fight because you'll be pushed, everyone will push against us with everything they have to do community with people that aren't like them. But it is a glorious thing to try and push for. And it's not just life sentence, it's color, it's language, it's everything. Uh, number seven, that culture used to be disturbed. Uh, we wanted to make service normative and not exceptional. Our country, uh, our, country our, our people are most of us, we used to be served. Uh, and it's just, we, we demand, if Telcom hadn't come and you know, fixed our thing or whatever, within 12 hours, you know, they'd be tweeting about it, and people are impatient that we want to be served. I'm like that. And some people's church appearance is that they just run up and they expect everything to happen. That's the one glorious thing about church planting is uh, don't do everything for people. Somebody gave us a pain in advice, which I think is good for church planting. Don't do for people what they can do for themselves. Now we now tell our kids that. They're old enough to say, I'm not doing for you what you can do for yourself. And look at us like, my parents are down in tools here, they're going on strong. Hey, you can do it yourself. And then we are, why should I do it for you? You can do it for yourself. In the church, let people come in and let them serve. It's a wonderful thing to have everyone just putting out the chairs, the coffee. Some of you remember those early church planning days where it was just crazy and everyone was in that stuff. That is a, a, a catalytic effect in, amongst a group of people. And as you get bigger and organized, that stuff dissipates. And you lose a your higher staff and people to get things done. You lose some of the edge. That keeps people laser-like on the mission, become very, very comfortable. I'm not against buildings and systems and all that kind of stuff, but just make serving a normative thing. We've got into trouble with a lot of our parents at the church, because we said to them, look, we don't have them. We've got a growing kids ministry. We're a young church. We have tons of kids. Ratio-wise, we've got a lot of wrong kids. We said to parents, our expectation is that you will serve. One in four at this church. You can alternate it as a couple, so one of you can serve, so you serve one in eight as an individual, but as a couple, as a family, you take one in four of those slots. You can choose the area in which you serve. You don't have to be a small group leader or a group teacher or do the worship. But our expectation is that you're going to serve. You're not going to arrive here and say, I am so tired. Oh, my kids tie me up and I think I'm handing them over. You can disciple them, teach them about Jesus. I'm going to worship Jesus in church. Three weeks of, three Sundays of the month, you can do that. But one of them, you're going to get involved and serve. Because serving is good for you, and because we are all team in this. We're not outsourcing this, we are team in this. And we have had people leave our church. Because they're like, yeah, I'm just coming out to be served. Like, well, you can go somewhere else. Because yeah, we're all pitching in. Hold the line on that if you can. It helped us. And we're starting to see the fruit born of that. Last one of these. Um, in a culture where the church is, is seen with suspicion, make it a priority to build trust in your community. So we replanted a Baptist church at a time. And it's in a very residential area. Parkers, there's small little properties all next to each other. The church building takes up three stands, and it's just surrounded with houses of rich, wealthy, white people who are mostly post-Christian and I hate the church. And over the road from our church was a lesbian couple. One is a high court judge and her, and her partner who is very vocal. And just two houses down was the head of the residence association of the area and a vile atheist. 
our first few months in that building were absolute hell. Because we would sing, we used to have to close the windows during the worship so the sound would go out. Because they would record over the road on their phones, the one lady would phone me during the service. And she's got the recording going. And she's swearing down the phone. Swearing down the phone. I, I'm, I think they're recording this. I'll probably tell you exactly what she said. You can all go to council and all like, It was not pleasant. She used words like wailing, lots of bleeping, bleeping, bleeping. And uh, week after week, I'll get these messages from her. Like hostile. We'd have them come over uh, the road. Our kids' church workers wore these shirts. It's a kids' church kind of thing. They, they were purple. I don't know. And she would be swearing at them. They're asking us, what kind of weird cult we are wearing these purple shirts and what's this brand new And she'd be swearing at every visitor that would come, asking them why and everything, whatever. They're enjoying this weird culture. Imagine inviting somebody to church and walking in and the neighbors stand across the road swearing at them and interrogating them why they're joining this weird thing. We're like, what's going on? It was a reminder for us at the lead I was saying yesterday about I think it was Steve's session on spiritual warfare. We sensed it, but I think we were just a bit light on the realities of it. And a lot of us and our people took a real beating in those months. We set out on a strategic, intentional strategy to befriend the people who handled us. We're six years in. On Easter Sunday, On Easter Sunday, Dan and I and our kids were invited for lunch with a group of friends, genuine friends. Straight off to church. They, they made it at a time that we could get to because they knew we would be busy at church. They moved a little bit late for us. It was hosted at the home of a lady who used to record the worship and straight out in front of us. She's still a head of the Residence Association. She hasn't become a Christian. She's going to come to Alpha the next time we do it. She's coming to our quiz evening in two weeks' time. I've got a whole, we've got two whole tables of guys from our community coming to participate in our church's quiz. It's not because we're amazing, it's because we have been like laser light over the years to befriend them, to reach out to them, to serve them when they're here, they're sick, they're taking a meal, offer to pray for them if we know something's wrong. And slowly but surely, God is eroding the lack of trust they have on the church. And he is reeling with them like this. We can just see it with our own eyes. God's walking around and they're coming slowly but surely into the kingdom of God. So when I next to this book, I'll share with you about the day that Cheryl became a believer in Jesus Christ. It's going to happen. But it just take them laser like intention. We've had to say no to a lot of other things to say yes to doing that. Because don't underestimate how suspicious people will be of the church's presence in your community. Recognize it, pay attention to it, and be very, very intentional about the those people. I want to say this one thing our church parties, you need to be a specialist with unbelievers. You need to be a specialist with unbelievers. If you prefer to hang around with Christians and pastor them, and like a fellowship dinner with believers is like seventh heaven for you, yeah, that's fine, but you're probably more wise as a pastor. And, and you just need to recognize that and just call it what it is and say, like, God is why I need to be a pastor. People, I should be a pastor. You're probably not a church planter. A church planter needs to be 
the family, the leader upfront, best with unbelievers, best with unbelieving, modeling and leading the charge, the, the sharp edge of that with unbelieving people. If unbelieving people freak you out, you feel nervous and awkward about it among Christians, uh, we prefer to be with, with Christians most of the time, you may want to reconsider um, whether or why you could fit from I just submit that for consideration. Let me fly through some of the things you could have done better. We underestimated the value of systems and administration. We had, uh, we had a great idea to just plant a church. And we didn't realize that churches were these, they're living organisms, but they need to be organized. I am, you know, the strength finder stuff, I don't, know if I don't have any of those things, those colors that help with that stuff. I don't know if that's even Jackie told me I should stay away from that stuff, I said, the right question. Communication and people, things, and whatever. Um, get systems, get admin. If it's not you, find somebody that can help you. Absolutely. Get strength in, in your church um, and in your team from that area. Don't think that we'll just do people, services, and we'll worry about all that stuff later. Systems are God-given things. Administration is a God-given thing to help you get better and care for people, to shepherd really well. We didn't do that well. We put up with us, and it actually slowed down. I think the growth of our church highest in about two years. Um, we're making some progress there. The second thing is that, uh, as a church founder, the mistake that I think we made was that we didn't think through leadership development from day one. Um, a lot of church founders think about launching a church. Like, I mean, it feels a bit like you're giving birth. I have not uh, done. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of excitement around the birth, and there's a lot of, like, care and preparation for the arrival of the child, and it's slightly different with parenting because you know, the kids there are quite demanding. The church is exactly the same. And we often get very focused on strategy and contextualization and a launch team and finances and venue and all this stuff to birth something. Uh, and, and we haven't actually thought past day one, never mind past year two. If you haven't planted anything, just have a three to five year vision. Ask God for something like that. Think about the church. It may not happen, it may not roll up like you think it's going to happen. But don't plan for day one, plan for year three before you start if you can. So we can do that enough. And how are you going to develop the leaders that you need? Not when you start. Not when you start, but when things grow. And start preparing for them before you have the people. Prepare the leaders before you have the people. Right now, prepare the leaders before you get the people. It is incredibly stressful to prepare leaders when you have the people coming in and you're looking around left and right thinking, Lord, please help me. And look, it's going to happen sometimes with God does his own thing, but we will woefully under-equip with leaders. We still are. We're, we're, we're suffering from a hangover from this from previous years. But our God's grace, we've made course corrections. We have a pipeline of leaders coming through now. It's going to serve us well into the future. But it was an insightful man. Number three was, don't take, you know, we took too long to create a leadership pipeline. I won't do that one again. Number four, don't try to pull off the events without giving people enough notice. I mean, it's a very simple thing. But I, I number one on my screen side is adaptability. I am your nightmare if you like to plan. I can change my mind like at the drop of a hat, and I love it. I love it. I 
people who do the same thing every day, remarkably boring. Yeah, and some of you are like, routine, I hate routine. Raising children when they have to do everything at the same time every day, it almost killed me. I was stuck for it. How did I get there? Oh, uh, <laughs> you can see, I'm not changing the most around this game. So we were, we were, I would think of an event. I'd be praying, or I'd think of an event. Awesome. Hey, let's do it in two weeks' time. I'll do it, I've got enough time. Two weeks, I've got time, I'll two weeks in, two weeks in. Get up, tell the church, oh, so we're doing this two weeks' time. The church is, look, I, because one of my strangest is communication, I can enthuse people and say, this is going to be a life changing, they're sitting there in the service and they're laughing. They walk in and they think, that's a two weeks' time. Like, no, we're busy, we're away, I can't do that. Like, why are you waiting for us now? I mean, it's like next weekend, or they're like, how's about a bit of planning, you know? And no one is coming to our events. Oh, well, I'd love to be there, but I can't. That's, to, that's all I ever heard. I'd love to be there, but I can't. I'm like, what is this? I'd love to be there, but I can't. Know I'm stuck in tears. Somebody sent me down and said, Boy, you've got to give people time to plan. Give them space to plan. Not everyone lives at the last minute. Let them buy into things and own them. And, and, and get a sense of anticipation around things, a build up to stuff. I'm like, okay. It's, for me, it still feels like I'm planning for next year when it's like next month. But I've learned from others, so now they take care of us, that I just rock up. I give some of that they put it in the candle, and we have had far more people buying inside events now. But in the early days, we struggled to get traction, because we weren't allowing people to buy things, because we're trying to do everything in reaction. Um, number five, we made a mistake in earlier, is not opening our pulpit up to external voices enough. And this is a mistake that you can make, particularly if you feel... Um, that one of your primary gifts is teaching or preaching or whatever. Um, you want people to be identifying with you. You want to be leading the church through the pulpit and shaping the church through the word and stuff like that. Don't overstate um, your importance to that congregation. It's God's word, whether it comes through you or an external voice. You are blessing and helping your congregation by untethering, even in the early days, their dependence on you as the mouthpiece. They need to hear from God, they don't need to hear from you. And uh, it's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing for us church planters to step in the background with somebody else take over your pulpit. They get up there, they say exactly what you've been saying, like week in and week out. And then you get the emails coming and it's like, we need to change everything because what's snapshot that I'm saying? I'm like, what do you mean? Like, maybe like, can I send you the last few sermons? And I actually make a little clips of where I've actually said the same thing, you know? And it reaches into the background. You know what it is? The best thing for your soul. As a, as a leader, as a preacher. You see how God gets you out of the way. It's just like, I'm going to do things, and sometimes I'm just going to do them just to show you that I don't need you. And you know you are in the pecking order. It's the word that does the work by the Spirit. It's not you, even through your gifting. Bring in other voices. It's refreshing for your church. It's good for your own soul to sit under preaching. Don't make the lazy excuse that there's no one who can fill your pulpit. I'll come after it. We now have a preaching team of six people. If you feel stressed, I'll come down and I'll fly down to your church and I'll preach something for you if you need a Sunday morning. There are people who will come. You don't have to fly me and find somebody else close to bar or wherever you are. Don't make that excuse that there's no one. There are people you're just too proud to use them probably. Sit under the preaching of others and let your church do the same. It will help you. Number six, we made the mistake of not being intentional with multi-ethnic involvement and involvement of ladies in our services. 
we were too strongly complimented but the guys need to leave the scene the guys need to be in the front modeling whatever else we want our guys setting the pace for stuff and we just Stephen Jack came on one Sunday and it was I remember the Sunday it was such a gift to me it was a hot Sunday and he looked and he's like where are the days and I was like it's a question my wife was serving in his ministry which she loves to do and also had to do with his numbers I was like very kind, but like, very clear. I was like, you're not going to read really the Texas. We now have a list. I meet with people. They're not white, and they're not men. We have a process of equipping them. They do notices, they anchor services, they lead ministries, because it's an oversight of us. We've got a whole bunch of white men who've been leading things, because that's the majority demographic. We're in like the palest part of our city. Demographics is a challenge to us. But we don't, we think that's a poor gospel reflection. And so we've overcorrected in that. We've been very intentional in that, but we didn't do that in the beginning, and it was a mistake. One thing we could have done better is making evangelism everyone's privilege. Stephen said it really eloquently. You have to equip people. Don't assume people know how to share their faith. Most people in your congregations do not know how to share their faith in Jesus Christ. Most people in your congregations do not know how to spend individual time with Jesus Christ. Ask them. Ask them the question. Not in an interrogating way, into guilt them, but ask them with a part of a pastor and a shepherd. Tell me about your devotional life. What are you reading in the Word? What is your weekly rhythm of life? I'm convinced that most people, especially in um, church plants that are a few years old, you've got the long team and you've got all the people who join. Once you get into that phase, you've got tons of people who are just coming along. And we've lost a whole generation of Christians who know stuff about daily office. Really digging deep into God's word. Enjoying it and then sharing their faith and win some ways. Our job is to equip people, not just to do it all ourselves. Let me say one last thing on this. You have to fight to build a praying church. It's a fight to build a praying church. We didn't fight enough to build a praying church. When, when it got too hard, we gave up a bit easier. We went light and stuff. So the tenants, the premiums, the loads, and making a bit of energy, yeah, let's just spread the light more often. I'll make it so regular. Steve said something yesterday, and the leaders kind of really uh, shook me. Uh, it was about a visit that had made it to Jubilee and you were there and she was just like amazed at how little they prayed to the amount of ministry that they did. Um, and I was like, we don't do that much ministry, but we have increasing ministry. And I was thinking, how much time do we pray? Same praying. Like, not saying prayers, you know, thinking about praying, really just waiting on God. And I, I, I feel a strong conviction. We, we got this wrong in the beginning. I feel a strong conviction to correct this again as we go home and to say, to our leaders and say, we're going to look at our diary, we're going to pray more than we do. We're going to look at the hours spent as a church. And when we, when we can up these hours, we'll up these hours. And until we can up these praying hours, we're not adding any new activity in. If we can't encourage people to pray, we're not asking people to come and do things. Because these things are just lacking. You know, you, you know what it's like in church, you do things to put stuff on you, go to the motion and there's nothing there. It lacks any power. There's no life change. I think we're missing something. Yeah. 
Kodeks. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can I give you a few requirements or plans? I'll leave out a couple of these. Number one is you need a clear biblical theology of the church. This is not just if you're a planter, if you're a leader, you need a clear biblical theology of the church. If you want to plant something and you don't know what you're planting, it's going to be an absolute mess. Uh, I've worked with enough church planters, um, they'll call themselves church planters, but in reality, this is what they are. They are service planters. They are meeting planters. They are congregation planters. They're not church planters. Because the way they're doing it, and what it looks like, it's not a church. It's not hard to plant a service. It's actually quite easy, depending on where you are. You get a half-decent band, somebody who can speak without making a total hash of it. Some nice coffee, some friendly people. Just add a few people. You've got something that looks like a church. Hey, we've gone out of church. Look at us. And then people start singing. And you don't understand how to deal with church discipline. People don't understand the role of biblical authority and how they relate to elders and what the instruction is to one another, each other, in the body. And the fact that they're on a mission given from Jesus that's fueled by the Holy Spirit. The understanding of what a church is is lost on not only the leadership but the people because they don't teach them that. Get that down before you take one step in the direction of following the church. What is this thing called the church? And what do we pray we will look like? The second thing is if you don't have a clear sense of call from God, go and do something else. But with all the love in the world, it's not you're not a failure. You're not a failure. You're just not a church planter. It's not what God's calling you to do. Because time and again, and then others in this room and outside, they will be able to testify to this way more than me. When the purple hits the fan, sometimes the sense that God has called you to do this thing is the only thing that will get you going through. Obviously, the strength and the presence of God, but you're going to go back to those things again and say, God, I am called to do this. Yes, I am called to do this. It's not like an empty mantra. You remember that God laid his hand on you and called you to go and do something. And even if it's turning out differently than how you expected, he still called you to do it. Parkers will turn out differently to how I accept it. Last year, we, we took the painful decision to not pray and advance help to not pursue eldership with two guys in our church that we going to the gym. They were two of my closest friends in the church and they planted with us and they've been friends of mine. One is my longest standing friend. Was my longest standing friend. They left the church. They unfriended us on every social media platform. They refused to meet to reconcile with us. They don't put this in. When I, when I did my acting around assessment, before we planted the church, they said to us, what cost are you willing to pay to plant? And we gave the normal trite answers. Yeah, no, not to offer Jesus, we went to that all down. They said, do you realize if you plant with your friends, some of them will leave along the way. And like, oh, no, we've heard stories like that. We've heard about those things. But I mean, you don't know our friends. These guys are like, we are like this. Kids, like, things within each other, birthdays, like, lifelong matches. We're all talking about the exploits of Jesus together. 
dalam kehidupan kami. Mana beres blocks on this house? Tapi kita sudah lihat yang kita lihat pada sekarang, we have kept certain verses what we do. We felt honestly before God we're making the right decision. Is there anything that helps me sleep at night? Knowing that I was legitimately before God, I had a sense of peace that we're doing the right thing. That it ripped my heart apart last year. And I was ready to pack the whole thing in a box and just stuck this. I'm pouring my life into this church, and I don't have tons of friends, and two of them have failed. Then I had went through a season of intense loneliness, just almost without friends. We thought this this is this is too much. The church is thriving, everyone's loving their lives at the church, and we felt lonelier than us anyone else in the church because our mates had just decided to bail. If God has not called you to do this, don't go ahead and do it. Because you'll face seasons like that where you'll want to pack all in a box. And even the kettle's going, but standing honestly before God empty hand and saying, God, you, you called us to do this. Pursuit and not enjoyment at the moment. But we're not going to bail. What else did we do? Where else are we going to go? Kind of like you and I have the words of eternal life. Not like we can't go do something else, but we feel constrained by God not to leave to go do something else because He's called us to this. Get there on call or else don't think any further. Steve already spoke about needing to create theological convictions. I don't need to do that again. Make sure you develop a rhythm of life that's not all about church. You're not first and foremost a church planter or a pastor. You're not. And if the rhythm of your life doesn't reflect that, you need to make some course directions. What happens if God in sovereignty took that away from you? Who would you be? How much of your identity and joy and worth is found in not being a pastor, just being a child of God, a follower, a disciple of Jesus? This is, this is, this is, if you haven't read Paul Tripp's Dangerous Calling yet, you need to download it or buy it and read it within the next month. Promising you'll do that if you haven't. It's, ministry is a mistress. <laughs> ministry is a, is a mistress and, and some of us this room is big enough that some of us you know that God is talking to you about this you need to make some poor spirituals because you love it you love it too much if God was to take it from you it would affect your love for him too much identity is wrapped up in that it's an occupation I have for us as church planters and leaders get a rhythm that's not all about the church I have not always done this well and by God's grace I have been by other people into building more of this into my life. I've been able to befriend non-Christian that has been singularly laughing with me. I ride my mountain bike, I run, I swim, I, I exercise so I can keep my head clear. We do other things, fair enough. We go to movies in the middle of the morning. When everyone else is slaving, keeping the economy going. We're going out and, and then because we're going to be counseling down until the 11 o'clock at night in our home. People don't see that. They look at you in movies of Amnesty Lucky being a pastor. <laughs> you know what I told them? I told them it is. <laughs> and with how many shorts are you warm in your suit then, my friend? <laughs> my boss said I can wear whatever I want to work, and uh, you go on with your day. You know, I've embraced it. I'm different. I'm different from others. And I'm okay with that. God has told me to do something different. It's not more important, it's not less important. And only that, only the rhythms that come with the difference of ministry. But don't make it everything. Spoke about counting the cost. 
Let me end with this about why I think we should part this together. Very briefly, provocation things. I don't know where you are with your church or church that begin a planting or your ability to help others to plant, but here are a few things why I think we should plant churches together and not alone. Because togetherness is how we got here. Just read your Bible. Read your Bible. The reason you're sitting here today is because the church is cooperated in together planting all the way through history. In the New Testament, missionary history is a, is a splendid history of togetherness in planting. That's how we got here, was because of togetherness. Together planting makes all of us stronger through a couple of things. It lifts the gaze of our people. This is incredibly important. When you plant, sometimes it's all just like your area. The prayers are all just prayed for your location, your, your like your local area. It's like, ah, oh, you know, in Parkus and in heaven, Lord, ah, oh. you have a heart, and you want people to have a brokenness overreaching an area where you're going for. But if it's two heads down and not eyes up, and you're not a part of something else as well. So when you're planting out, when you're just launching the thing, I would give you grace and say, you need to, you need to have some time to focus. But as you find your feet, as quickly as you can, lift the gaze of your people by getting involved in planting outside. That's why we have that because there's always something going on somewhere around the world. The planting, work, somewhere where we can get our gaze, get our money, get our praise behind. I don't know how people just to be chickens picking up the ground there. Because that's what they will do if you leave them to their own devices. You know, people aren't wired to pray for the nation to be worried about it. They're wired like chickens, just packed up in front of their mouths. I, I think I mean, maybe the people are different, but ours are not. Together, the planting makes us stronger by sharing the joys and sharing the struggles too. We plant together a lot of other churches when hope hits the fan, we're all feeling it. We're all carrying the weight of that together. It's not just one church just like having to sit in there and we're sharing it. And when that church is thriving, there's a whole bunch of different communities, a whole bunch of churches all celebrating that joy together. There's just much more joy and sharing of pain there. There's lots of room for expression of gifts. Here's the number one thing, well not number one thing, but it's a very important thing. This helps to slay pride in churches and church leaders together planting. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with church planters. A badge of honor on church plants is that your church plant that you planted was able to reproduce and plant something else. Look what we I planted something that wasn't just a church, but now we have a church that's planted again. Uh, look at us, badge of honor there. Well done, us. Plants, together plants, where you don't care who gets the credit. It is, who said it, but it's amazing what can get done if you don't mind who gets the credit. The church needs to appropriate this. So you just send your people, you send your money, you send your prayers, and Jesus gets the glory for it because it's thriving. And even if people out there don't know that it's necessarily your church that did that, you come to an advanced gathering and no one knows the significant role your church played in something that is happening in the south of Joburg or whatever. No, yes, it's a good thing. It will chop your pride up. Keep you a bit humble. We need a lot more of that. Because we want a little bit, just a little bit of glory, not too much, because most of the best Jesus, we just want to share in them, we just want to dabble in the bit of the glory. And it's, it's insidious, it's in our hearts, and together planting helps us slay pride in us. Send the money with your blessing, and let them do with it what they want. Send your people, send your prayers, make it anonymous. Make it anonymous. 
We want the church plant to thrive and make it. We don't need glory from that. You have joy because you see the thing thriving. You don't need glory as well from it. The last thing I'll say is this, that I think together planting is one of the only ways we will reach the majority of South Africa. Too much of the resource is still sitting in too few hands. And if there's a movement we're serious about advance reaching this nation, then the churches with the resource need to sit down and have some very long, hard discussions around that burden to reach the nation and what we are going to do with an over-accumulation of resource, finances, talents, people, access, how are we going to fight against injustice, poverty, inequality, but how are we not going to just tell guys in some of the poorer areas of our country, we're seeing thoughts and prayers and a bit of cash, can't send a bit of cash, we're going to send tons of cash. Guys can't be by vocation, I read an article the other day that said in lower income areas, bivocationality is a kiss of death on church planting. We tell guys, look, we don't have enough money, so you're going to have to do bivocational planting. In poorer areas, it just takes so much longer to do everything, to live. It drains so much energy from people in lower income areas, just to make it through. If you partner with places like that, send way more cash than you would send to do it in the suburbs. Let that church thrive. Let them have an abundance of stuff. Let the church partner not have to worry about those things. If we're serious about reaching everyone in the, in the nation, there needs to be a redirection. Guys in the suburbs can do bivocationality far quicker than guys in townships and rural areas. The money needs to go in different places. And sometimes it's very expensive, and that's what I'm saying to the other Not just our church, the friend metrics, like this group of churches, we want to come alongside an area and say, look, lead us, guide us with wisdom, yeah. Let the guys who are in that area tell you what they need and how it's going to go down. How it's going to go down. Let them lead it and you bankroll it. Not the experts. We are partnering with a church plant in Dipster. I know this much about planting a church in Dipster. And I know that, thank you, by the grace of God, I know that I don't know how to plant a church in Dipster. I know how to befriend the guy who's a church plant in Dipster and love him, and encourage him, and fundraise for his needs. But when we can sit down with him, we back him, and we say, oh, you need to be accountable, absolutely, for these things, but we want to oversupply you here, and give your plant an absolute, the best chance of survival. The best chance, not just like a moderate chance, you want to the best chance of survival. And that's costing us a lot of money. Particularly in a movement sense, we have far too few churches in colorful areas in the and poor areas. It's still largely a white, wealthy movement. And if we want to be a movement that's going to really shape the nation, we need to redirect things, have some hard conversations with some of our churches. It's slowly gripping our churches' heart, and I pray that it grabs us as a movement that we see God do something wonderful in poor areas. Outlying areas of our country. Gospel taking root amongst people. God raising up men and women from those areas to lead as a process standing in other places would be a wonderful place in our movement, wouldn't it be? That's all then. You're free to go to lunch.
we'll be on 10 minutes. This event is one more for two hours. Okay, well, there's 10 minutes of questions. If anyone, you don't have to say the questions that you want to ask. Okay. Second question, 
is you mentioned the issue of length of preaching. Um, how long do you preach for the number of I'll start with the second one first. Um, I only preach for 45 minutes. But um, we have a preaching team of five or six guys now, and not all of them preach for 45 minutes, sometimes they preach more than 45 minutes, so probably should. Um, I think in our, in our area, in our context, 45 minutes, you can get a lot said in 45 minutes. You have to be exceptionally gifted to preach for more than 45 minutes and still hold people. You probably have to be more gifted than I to preach for 45 minutes and still hold people. But some people can preach for 25, 30 minutes and that time, and it's great, and it's helpful. Um, we've gone with 40, 45. I know some guys want to push it south and just say, well, you shouldn't be longer than 30, 35 in a traffic setting. I don't entirely agree with it, um, but that's not what we do. In terms of planting a model, my, my sense, and this is obviously, this church is an advance that we're definitely like this. Uh, we're less fans of multi-site models, we're more fans of multi-site that moves to autonomous congregations. You can do a lot as multi-site in many churches. Uh, like, as a common ground, we're a great example of that. Um, and I think when you're looking at reaching a whole city, you need everybody. You need autonomous small churches, and you need the big multi-site, and you need mega churches. You need everything. Um, and I would go online and look for an article by Al Bob, Al Bob from City to City with you. Uh, he's got an article on, on how to reach a city, and the necessity for all types of churches to be involved in a city, to reach the city. So you need some churches that are like a reaching a very narrow demographic. You just leave them be. Like, they don't have to look like everything in the city because they're going to reach people. Like some people in the city, the subcultures, they're not going to go to a church if all the other people are there. They want to just go to those things. And you sort of like, you look at the city as a whole and you think that's fine. They're going to reach people that other people find. Um, I think when you're planting, so as we plant out, we plant uh, a cycle things into uh, congregations under collective leadership, and then as soon as you can raise elders, because that's the defining thing, as soon as there's eldership ready to take that church, and it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us, and it's not an OP plan, actually, I think you let them go. And there's something good about celebrating churches that stand together, they've got mission on multiplying DNA, and then you let them do the same thing again, and they multiply us. That's the preferred model that we have. But like I said, guys are common ground, and others do all this differently. We need everything. Test test and it will come through 
and you'll be more convinced that the Lord will be with you. So I would submit to you that if you feel called, find um, leadership and experience classes. That's one of the blessings of actually kind of got a very rigorous assessment process. You can't do that thing if you know, uh, yes or no, kind of thing. You should do that. So I think submit yourself to that kind of rigorous testing of your call. I just, I just think that run across your good mates, run across the people who have every reason to doubt that you could put it off. And listen to them, that's all. Uh, you're going to have to be afraid of the cross you and cause you to kind of do something. Um, don't even discourage you, obviously, but weigh things well. Um, and then make sure that you're with the church that can plant you. Yeah. Don't go and be a um, solo pilot. There are always stories of guys who've uh, rolled in somewhere, got off the plane, not backed by anybody, and planted something, and it's just amazing. You know? But everyone knows something like that, or maybe you can die of those stories exist in church planting mythology. But most guys, most guys who do that end up, end up back on the plane crying at home when Jesus exists. That's the honest truth of it. Like, it's brutal. It's hard, hard work. Um, so plant out of the church. If you're not currently in a church that believes in church planting, take that to the Lord and wake it up and say, Lord, is this the church that you want me to plant from? Because if they're, not, if they're not with you in heart and soul and they don't understand church planting and mission, you may need to move and join somewhere else, spend time there, that you can be planted. You need to be sent from somewhere. You're not just going to send yourself, it's going to end in tears. So find a place where you know you can be sent from, uh, get stuck in there, make sure that that church is the same vision, not that you have, but for multiplication of planting, and make sure you have their trust. And, and don't go in and just spread rumor and work to planting and steal the people and run off and find church planting. It won't be the first, you won't be the first person to done it. But don't do that. Like, that's a really bad idea. Some are called, some are sent. Some just took the microphone and went. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I should be a teacher today and I'll talk But even Jesus was sent. So make sure that you win the leadership's trust. And you have the same heart kind of thing that behind you, and that you have the permission and blessing and enthusiasm to raise up people from that congregation and other places to be sent somewhere. They may send you to a different place. You're not taking people from that congregation. They need to go to other places. You know, those are my people, and I've got my back. They're praying for me. I'm here with their blessing and under their authority. There's no lone rangers in the kingdom of God lost. So those would be the immediate steps, and then if it's a local thing, you know, it's all that stuff around that kind of stuff. I can see some stuff, Keller's got some stuff, some technical verse on how to go about all that stuff. It's really, really helpful. Yeah. Last thing, huh? More good comment. One of my stress tests is if the planter is a semi terrifying planting, I don't think I'm going to do it. Because if you're going into super idealistic and they, uh, I'm not so sure you, you really know what church planting is. It's going to be like, you've got to be semi terrified so that you know you're a better planter. Yeah, that's a good point. God will either terrify you before you plant, or he'll terrify you in the planting. You can choose. Uh, enjoy, man, guys.